Hello, everybody, and welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our institutions are failing and what we can do to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Okay, so for all you Simpsons fans out there, you might remember uh, season five, episode 17, Bart Gets an Elephant, way back from 1994, classic Simpsons. And there's a great bit with the DJs at KBBL 102.5, in which there is this device called the DJ 3000. It's kind of an early automated DJ, uh, some prescient futurism there. Uh, anyway. Here, here's what the DJ 3000 says, and, and I'm not doing the voice properly, but it says, looks like those clowns in Congress did it again. What a bunch of clowns. And one of the real DJs is kind of befuddled. And he asks, oh, how does he keep up with the news like that? So 1994, congressional approval was in the 20s. Today, congressional approval still in the 20s. But maybe today's Congress is even worse. Is it? Uh, will it always be this bad? Well, to help us make sense of today's Congress and yesterday's Congress and maybe even the Congress of the future, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Philip A. Wallach, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and is the author of an important new book titled Why Congress? No question mark. Uh, so welcome, Phil. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us and writing a really interesting book, which I, I want to talk all about. It's kind of a perfect book for our podcast because it's really about how an institution is failing and uh, how we might fix it. So let's start with today's Congress. So uh, it's a cliche to say Congress is dysfunctional. Those clowns in Congress are at it again. Uh, and, and as you note in your book, Congress has never been particularly particularly popular as an institution, but it seems like today's Congress is really quite dysfunctional. So how do you think about today's Congress? How do we measure dysfunctionality? How do we know when Congress is just modestly dysfunctional or even functional but unpopular versus really dysfunctional? Well, we have to think about what we want out of Congress. And the argument in my book is that we, we should want Congress to be fighting over the big issues of the day. Um, it's a very Walnerian argument for those faithful listeners of, of, of your show. Uh, and, you know, basically my sense is that Congress today doesn't give us the fights over the big issues we need. It doesn't give us the resolution on, any, on a whole lot of the big issues that people rightly feel are, are challenging America right now. And so, you know, when, when Congress does get to work and do some compromises, people sometimes are dissatisfied with that. They think, oh, the sausage making is very uh, unlovely, shall we say, if they take a close look at it. But my argument is, yeah, we, we need them to be doing that hard work of, of figuring out accommodations between differing factions. And that's, that's what we don't get in a lot of cases today. We get two sides working to make each other look as bad as possible rather than working to solve the problems. Um, and that's, that's the result of 
some pretty long running developments that go all the way back to 1994 and even beyond, but it's not the way Congress has always been. So that's part of the point of the book is to try to get people to appreciate in the long scope of history, Congress has been a lot of different ways. It's, it's organized itself differently. It's featured very different arrangements of power. And we're in, a, in the 21st century, we're in an era where both chambers are, are very dominated by their top leaders, but they don't have to be that way. And so the book is in some part a, a plea to, to try some other uh, method of organizing the place with more decentralized power. Well, number one, uh, thank you. Number two time or the, you know, this is the second time you're now on the podcast. I want to just point that out for listeners. It's a very notable uh, achievement. There are not many people. In fact, only one other person, our good friend, Matt Glassman, who we all know, has been on the podcast twice as well. I mean, there may have been others, but right now I can't remember. And so I think that it really is a notable achievement. Also, number two, it's good to see you. I worked with Phil for our listeners for, for a, a long time. It was some of the, the happiest and most fruitful intellectual um, kind of period in my, in my life. And, and I really enjoyed that. And I miss the fact that he's now over at uh, AEI and I'm at R Street, but really down in South Carolina. So it's hard to have those kind of daily interactions where Phil would ask me a question and I would respond and he would look at me like I was crazy. And then he would think for a second and then he would like kind of walk away. Um, or, you know, or I could go in and say, what do you think about this? And he would, in, in classic fashion, be, you know, much more, um, you know, kind of steady about it and say, okay, let's just, let's just think about this. You know, you know, the moon does exist. Let's not go too far out there. Right. Um, but number, so welcome. And, and then the other thing I want to just say off the, 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 the top here is for our listeners, this book is, is an extraordinary book and I highly recommend it, White Congress. It, there are not many good books on Congress these days, and this is coming from someone who writes books on Congress. And in fact, the last time I have picked up a book on Congress that I thought did a really good job of capturing what happens in Congress and helped me to better understand it, uh, it, it was not in 1953, but the book was published in 1953. It's now since out of print, if that gives you an idea. Um, but this book is, is an extraordinary book, and it really does, I think, help to, to get us to see Congress in a different light. And that is a huge undertaking, because right now I think so much about the current dysfunction it stems from how we think about Congress and, and how that's uh, that kind of gap between how we think about it and what it is in reality. But with that, I just wanted to ask, you know, I want to start off with a, you know, a really, you know, kind of abstract conceptual question, because I know you love these types of questions. Maybe I'll hit up some literature in a little bit. Maybe I'll talk about, you know, Broadway, we'll see. But the, the first question I have is, are, is approval the right way to even think about Congress, right? It, does approval, when we think about congressional approval, is it, you know, I go back and I think, were people in the 1850s, like, did they approve of the job that Congress was doing or did they see it as something else, right? Uh, did they see it as a place where they go or their representatives go to do something on their behalf uh, versus an entity that they can approve of or disapprove of? And I may be wrong. I mean, I don't know the history here on this, but I just, I'm, I'm curious to see, one, if you ran into this in your research and then two, what you think about thinking about Congress in terms of something that we approve, what it does and how that may shift our thinking about the place uh, to kind of, you know, in unproductive ways. 
Well, thank you for those kind words, James. Um, I, I think there is a sense that approval is not the right metric necessarily. Um, I have this quotation from 1925 from the then Speaker of the House, Nicholas Longworth. And he says, from the beginning of the Republic, it has been the duty of every freeborn voter to look down upon us and the duty of every freeborn humorist to make jokes at us. And he, he sort of said, if Congress aims at popularity, it's just going to be out of luck. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I think when Congress is functioning better, people have a sense that it's an important place, an interesting place, a place full of possibilities. And like I said, I think, I think there's pretty good evidence that they never really liked watching the sausage making. Um, it's just somehow that watching politics unfold in the most visible sort of way as, uh, as Congress does present it to the public is sometimes um, a little bit ugly, but that's okay. Um, when, when it's nevertheless working well, people feel like they're sending their trusted representatives to Congress and that those people are encountering the trusted representatives from other people around the country and that that's making things happen. And, you know, I think that still happens a little bit today, but, but it's largely a sense of futility that surrounds the place. So I would rather people be a little dissatisfied with the ugliness of Congress and the, the somehow sordidness of politics. Maybe those are just sort of bound to be concerns that people have. Uh, some, something in the human character makes it so we aren't going to love politics. That's okay. Uh, but when, when people just consistently think that, that Congress is a place of, of futility, um, that's really much more troubling. Lee, I just want to just touch real quickly for our listeners on the ugliness of Congress. As a former Senate snap, uh, staffer and, and, and Senate snob, probably, uh, you know, I, I often joke about the House of Representatives being a, a, a sticky place with lots of people and it's everything's disheveled over there. And the Senate is this high minded place with these great corridors. But I was in D.C. recently and I just have to share this with everybody. I was walking into the Rayburn House office building. And I looked down, this is right at the entrance, right? Right at the entrance in front of one of the offices there, there was like chocolate milk stains just all over the floor. It went around the corner and like down the hall and then it slowly like kind of faded out. So I just, you know, the ugliness of Congress can take many different forms. And I just think let's, let's start mopping our floors over there in the house. All right. So one of the forms of ugliness is chocolate milk, but chocolate milk has been around for a long time. Uh, so I, I want to pick up on this point about futility uh, that you, you raise here, Phil, because I, I think uh, one of the points that you're trying to make and, and that James has been making for a while on this podcast is, is that a lot of this futility is – almost self-fulfilling, that there are a lot of members, and this has been the case for a while, who uh, go to Washington to run against Congress. Uh, they uh, go to Congress despite not really seeming to believe in Congress as an institution. They run against Washington. So although Congress itself is often unpopular, individual members uh, kind of pose themselves as somehow above it, that they're going to be the ones who are going to get Washington working again. Uh, 
Is there a problem of overpromising and uh, probably cynically overpromising? Is 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 that the problem, Phil? That that people go there with the wrong intentions and the and the and the wrong spirit. And if so, is the challenge to get people to go to Congress to think differently about what it means to be in Congress? Yeah, I think members allow themselves a little bit of schizophrenia when they go to Congress. I think almost all of them have on the on one side sort of a lot of high-minded hopes and ambitions for doing good work on behalf of their constituents and the American people more broadly. And then on the other side, they just sort of allow themselves to say, well, I'm going into a deeply compromised place and I need to adapt myself to the way it works. And they, they don't really force themselves to resolve those countries. They sort of think of themselves and their, their real soul is is bound up in those high-minded ambitions that probably become more and more frustrated as, as they hang around Washington. And then their sort of practical, pragmatic character as politicians is, is confirmed by, by adapting themselves to the system. And, you know, that's not crazy. That's, uh, that's a Weberian political ethic at, at work in part, but they're they're allowing themselves to adapt to this system that really nobody's very happy with, uh, that produces an awful lot of symbolic position-taking, you know, and ish sort of blame avoidance, you know, also time-honored traditions in Washington, but kind of doesn't give them enough outlets for their, for their high-minded ambition. Um, and my plea to the members is just, hey, allow that side of yourselves to work a little more. And the way that that's going to happen is think about building coalitions for laws that can actually pass. And, you know, in our current moment of divided government, that necessarily means building bridges across across the partisan divide. And I think the leaders are, have been very actively discouraging that for many years now. They just find it inconvenient when people... Um, get together on big issues and try to make things happen because they'd rather stage manage everything in a very careful way. And then again, in a way that's calculated to frame their opponents in the worst possible light ahead of the next election. And I just, mem- I think a lot of members are, are straining under this system. They, they wish things were different. And the book is just meant to be a sort of prod to that to that side of their their sense of things that you want things to be different. Hey, guess what? Things used to be different. They could be different if enough of you members got together and made them that way. Um, it's it's not high in the sky. It's the way things used to be in Congress, and that's I think a, a lot of people just don't have that on their radar, unfortunately, in the in the 118th Congress today. So I I want to ask you a little bit more about the way things used to be, because I think certainly things used to be different. And um, I'd like you to spell that out a little bit more. But I think a a few things have really changed dramatically over the last few decades. Electricity. And they started taking uh, credit cards in the Senate. Yes. Well, that 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 has changed 
uh, too. Yes. Also, the food has gotten better in Washington, D.C., uh, so there's more dining options. That's been a big, big change. Uh, but <laughs> broadly, you know, I think the polarization has gotten a lot worse and centralization of power has gotten a lot worse. Elections have become a lot closer nationally so that at least one or if not both chambers are at stake with every election so that discourages uh, bipartisanship that muddles things. A lot fewer districts have are, are and states are competitive now as the parties have geographically sorted and our politics has become much more nationalized. So in, a, in an earlier era in which Congress worked a lot better, we, we had those overlapping coalitions because there were Democrats from all over the country and Republicans from all over the country and liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans. And so wh what's really happened over the last several decades is a kind of flattening of our politics so that as much as we might say, well, Congress should be more like it used to be, problem is that the conditions in our national politics and the places where members came from and the electorates that they faced and and the the still local varieties within our political parties enabled that and so given the changed circumstances uh you know it it feels a little bit like spitting into the wind to say, well, just do something differently, even though the national conditions are totally different. Yeah, so I, I, I guess I'm inclined to dispute a, some part of your premise. Good. That, Let's that dispute. I, I think that it's true that our congressional politics have gotten flattened out in exactly the way you described. And some people think, well, that's just reflective and representative of the way the country is. But I just I don't accept that. Um, I have a I have a sense that both parties are suppressing successfully a lot of ideological dissent within their own caucuses, and that there's really quite a range of opinion on an awful lot of issues. Like the Republican Party, especially, it's easy to see today. Like, is Republican is the Republican Party the party of sort of a big military? It has been, but there's an awful lot of elements now voicing discontent with that. Uh, is it is it sort of an anti-regulatory, big pro-big business party? It, that certainly was not a bad description at, at some points in the recent past. But again, I think there's a lot of sort of new forces percolating up that, that make us think maybe we're ripe for some kind of reorganization. And so, you know, I take heart from the fact we've, this is not the only moment in our history where we felt like we're stuck with sort of two diametrically opposed parties and nothing could break us out of it. And that's, that's how we came into the 20th century as well. The Republican Party was, uh, was dominant at that time, so that is a little different, but uh, there was a sense that sort of both parties were locked into these rigid orthodoxies. And eventually discontent with those orthodoxies uh, allowed for disruption. And that took some, some brains and some opportunistic maneuvering and some courage uh, to, break, to break up the sort of dominating organizing principle. I'm the, my favorite thing in, in my book might be the, the political cartoon on page 36. So go out there and get the book just so you can see this beautiful cartoon of Speaker Joseph Cannon 
It's, uh, it, it depicts him uh, as presiding over the house and it's the caption is the house in session according to the minority point of view. And it depicts Speaker Cannon who's an eminently caricaturable figure uh, who always had a cigar sticking out the side of his mouth. And he's presiding over the house and every single member of the house out in the chamber is another little Joseph Cannon. And there was a sense that Joseph Cannon embodying the Republican party orthodoxy had just squeezed every other view out of, out of the chamber effectively. And that was 1908. By 1910, they had overthrown Speaker Cannon's dominance. And that involved some progressive Republicans deciding that party loyalty was not as important to them as moving policies that they thought were important for America. So, you know, that kind of thing has happened before. I, my hope is that it could happen again today. I think it requires some people willing to imagine what kind of policies they could move if they built bipartisan coalitions. I mean, again, you know, you can say that's just far-fetched. Nobody wants to think in that way. I, I, I'm not so sure. I think I take some heart from, from the sort of strange maneuvering that some of the new members of Congress are, are doing. So, you know, Senator J.D. Vance, think of him whatever you might like, but he's, he's surprising some people with what he cares about and who he's willing to work with to move his priorities. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a healthy operating of Congress. Strange bedfellows is always a, is always a latent possibility in, in politics as long as people are free to maneuver. And, you know, it just takes some, it takes some members having the imagination to do it rather than just being loyal party foot soldiers. John C. Calhoun's the, the pallbearer at uh, John Quincy Adams' funeral, right? And uh, his house here, uh, Fort Hill in uh, Clemson, South Carolina, they have a, uh, you know, he has a sideboard that, and it's in the USS Constitution. And Henry Clay also has, uh, I think, I believe it's a sideboard as well, that he and Clay and Webster were, were very close. They also didn't agree on pretty much everything. Right. They didn't agree on pretty much everything. And at the same time, but they were they also saw the, the Senate, at least, as a place where they would go to do battle with those with whom they disagreed, including one another. And, I'm, and I'm, I guess my question relates to this idea of uh, bipartisan coalitions and how do we get them? And it's almost as if is it that we wake up in the morning and we decide that we're going to go to work today to be bipartisan or do these things reflect? the uh, something different, which is a bunch of people coming to work to try to win. And the outcome of a free flowing process is that kind of bipartisan outcome, because it's always going to be bipartisan. No party. Madison's told us this, as you quote him extensively in the book as well, in Federalist 10, and your concept of manyness, which I think is a fabulous way of describing it. Uh, this idea of out of many, we have one, uh, e pluribus unum, right? That's the whole notion here. And a nationalized politics, just to push back against Lee for a second, is not necessarily in, is not inconsistent with manyness. We've had nationalized politics before, you know, lots of different periods in American history where we still had a very diverse um, internally divided parties, all kind of the different factions in those parties doing battle against one another, against their opponents and other parties. And the outcome of that result was a bipartisan coalition. And I think today we often think, well, man, if we could only have more Susan Collins as man, that'd be awesome. We could then just, we could make it work. Or the, the problem solvers caucus, you know, 
you know, I, it's, I, I don't think Daniel and I don't, you know, and I, the problem solvers caucus is great and all, but I don't think like Daniel Webster, Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun are going to be in the problem solvers caucus. They have a distinct view and they're trying to win and they see threats and they look for allies when they can to repel those threats. And I think it's the problem so much that we don't have bipartisanship as it is that we think that we can win in a different way in different places. Something that you, you speak to in the book as well, in the executive or in the courts or elsewhere. I think that's key. I mean, if you're a good representative of your faction, sort of, especially, you know, the more, the more we do have geographical coherence, the more appealing this vision is. So to the extent Lee thinks that geography is obsolete, I, I do understand why why he'd wish for the legislature to be organized differently. But to the extent that you can be a good representative of your, of your section uh, and you want to do good things for that section and for the country, and you look to actually dealing with the problems that face the country, you're going to find opportunities for cooperation. It's not, as you say, James, it's not because you want to do bipartisan things. It's because you just want to do things. And the way to do it is to build coalitions that include members from both parties, from many factions, right? It can't, it can't, it's not just about two parties, it's about many factions. And, you know, I think there are, you know, I may have a little bit more sympathy for just sort of centrism than, than you do. I think there are a lot of issues where if we could get a, both parts of the middle against the two sides of the extremes, we might find 300 votes for some things in the House of Representatives and say, sorry, Progressive Caucus, sorry, Freedom Caucus, like you can go do your, do your howls of protest and vote no, but we're gonna get some things done. I mean, that's, that's a model of legislating that, that still has some uh, familiar routine usage today. And I think it could be applied to some more issues. So I think, that's not the only kind of coalition building you can do though. I'd be very eager to see some of the folks who don't associate themselves with the political establishment, nevertheless, think of themselves as potential coalition builders, right? That's the, that's the operative principle of Congress is doing coalition building. Uh, it, it, that's what a legislature is all about. It's, and the problem is if the legislature is just a loudspeaker for yelling at the president, I mean, then, then it you really impoverished what it, what it can be. It, it sort of becomes automatically subordinate to the other two branches, and that's that's part of one of the futures that I'm worried about for the institution. Yeah. So let's move towards uh, the the futures section of the book, which I, I, I particularly enjoyed, and and I think it's always incredibly valuable to. Uh, kind of play out these different scenarios and think through what the futures could look like. So you have three scenarios following the rule of threes, decrepitude, rubber stamp, and revival. And I think one way to think about uh, uh, those is in terms of dimensionality that the uh, decrepitude is essentially uh, retaining the one-dimensional politics that we have now. The rubber stamp is almost a, a kind of no-dimensional politics that's just basically authoritarianism. 
and the, and the revival is the multidimensional view that I think the, the three of us all share, although we have different ways of talking about it and thinking about how it would uh, revive. So could you kind of talk us through these different scenarios and then we'll kind of uh, – we'll, we'll respond to them. So talk us through what, what does decrepitude look like? Is that just more of the same? Is that just we continue to muddle through in this miserable way that we've been doing now? Yeah, so decrepitude just imagines Congress becoming more and more marginal as the years go by. Um, some of the things that are still functional enough ceasing ceasing to work at all anymore. So Congress just becomes a place that's known for screwing things up, right? That's known for shutting shutting the government down, maybe throwing a debt default somewhere along the way. Um, and the thing about that scenario is America is not going to completely grind to a halt, right? We're going, the federal government is going to find ways of changing policies to adapt to changing conditions. That's, that's a certainty. And the way it's going to happen more and more is through unilateral executive branch action that the judiciary either fights with or acquiesces to more likely. And, um, uh, I think we can cut Congress out of the loop an awful lot. We, we already have to a great extent today. Um, and that's, that's sort of the more of the same. And I, you know, I, I don't think that that's apocalyptic for the country, but I think that it represents like a serious legitimacy crisis in the making, right? Because it sort of says, well, everything is going to rest on these quadrennial elections of the president. That's what's really going to matter, and the, the the judicial appointments that the president makes, you know, those really matter, and nothing else is all that important. And I think that those institute, those electoral institutions, just can't bear the weight of that. They can't deal with all of the manyness of America. They're just not complicated enough. They're not sensitive enough to changes, and they do put us in a very zero sum mindset for all of this. Politics at its best creates positive sum possibilities for, for all this interfactional bargaining. We find ways of doing things that make more of us happy than not. And the more we make things all revolve around presidential elections where we decide who gets to control the super legislature of the Supreme Court, the more that just feels very zero sum. Uh, so that's the decrepitude scenario. The, the next scenario I'll just go on without you having to prompt me is called rubber stamp. And the idea there is like, we say Congress is such a big problem, let's reform it in the sense of making it less of a problem. And that can, for many reformers, that means getting it out of the way, making sure it doesn't screw things up. And so emblematic of this, my favorite thing is Mark, Senator Mark Warner has a, a, a bill that he's been submitting for the last few Congress is called the Stop Stupidity Act. And I can't remember exactly what that acronym stands for, but the Stop Stupidity Act is about uh, creating automatic continuing resolutions, where instead of government shutdowns, we would just have auto automatic continuing resolutions entered into law if Congress fails to pass discretionary appropriations. Basically, put the whole government on autopilot just in case Congress is, is a big screw up. And that kind of embodies the spirit that I'm worried about, where I think a lot of sensible people 
just think, let's get Congress out of the way because they just mess things up. And I understand the impulse, but I think it's really unhealthy. And it ultimately leads us into a place where we're going to just make Congress officially, formally, constitutionally an appendage of the executive. And not to be too melodramatic about it, but that to me really sort of embodies the cessation of free politics in our country, because you're going to have the executive more and more uh, trying to suppress its enemies as outside the bounds of legitimate discourse. You're not going to have a healthy exchange of views and a healthy push toward compromise. You're going to have sort of scorched earth, winner takes all dynamics. And Congress is going to be there cheering, right? What's the Star Wars line that this is the way free republic dies to the sound of thundering applause. That, that's sort of the worry with the rubber stamp. You're not, you're not going to get rid of Congress. Authoritarian countries all have their nice little legislatures that pass all the laws, but everyone understands that they're just sort of uh, performing some kind of ministerial function. There's no real action there. There's no real drama in different different people with different views encountering each other and having to figure out what to do with each other. They're just going to do what the boss says. And that's, that's a, you know, I think, I think that's a big worry that the, the reformers are going to push us in that direction, which to me is a, a cure worse than the disease. So that leaves us a pretty bleak future, decrepitude, rubber stamp, either way, declining legitimacy, uh, and just sort of a, a politics that can't handle the diversity of this large country. So where is your deus ex machina at the end here, Phil? Right. The last chapter is revival and uh, tries to see this multipolar Madisonian politics reemerging. And yeah, I, I, I have to admit that it takes, that one took a little more imagination to write my future scenario. It was a little harder to get out of the gate there. And in the end, what I did is imagine an immigration crisis sort of 10 times worse than the one we have ongoing today. And to think that maybe if we had something that dramatic, it would scramble the lines of our politics such that one's views on immigration would not neatly align with party and they would come to disrupt the partisan organization of the house that we've become so familiar with. And, and in my scenario, I actually imagine a speakership fight, which had not happened for a century when I when I wrote my chapter. But of course, now we've had a had a, a whiff of in in 2023. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's exciting to imagine different factions blowing the chamber open rather than allowing the speaker to dominate everything, force everything out into committees, uh, force force important debates to play out with with more of a chance for widespread participation. Um, the, the sort of the nub of that scenario is that the American people come to realize that we're having this important fight in Congress and that we're going to come to some accommodation in Congress and it's not going to be perfect, not going to make everyone happy, but that's where the action is. And that's how we're going to make our way through this crisis. Um, that's, that's, that's the sense we need to recover one way or another with Congress if, if we're going to restore it to vitality. Um, and it's not going to be easy. I think, you know, I've been sort of waiting for this thing to come and might have thought Donald Trump was the thing or might have thought COVID was the thing. And it turned out, no, 
those were not the thing. Uh, our, our, our professional partisans were very well able to deal with those challenges and assimilate them into the sort of partisan lines that we're so used to at this point. Um, but my hope is that there is a thing coming down the pike because there's enough latent diversity within the parties and enough desire to see things work differently. But, um, but I, if I'm a betting man, I'm not sure that that's where I put my money. Well, eventually something has to change. And, and it, uh, it, it seems like we are in this state in which there are so many pressures going in different directions that at some point, things that feel like they can't go on forever don't go on forever. But I think you're absolutely right. It will take some kind of significant crisis in which the usual patterns break. And then when the usual patterns break, people have to invent new ones. And suddenly you reach a new equilibrium. I've been thinking a lot about how politics is really a complex system. And one of the things about complex systems is that when they change, they change very suddenly. And I, I, I think that at some point change has to come and it will come suddenly. And, and I think the, the vision of multidimensional Congress is – really the only way that we can manage to govern uh, this diverse country. So I, I want to give you a chance I want to, to close with a plea to, to members. You, you, you end your book with a letter to members of Congress. So maybe even some members or congressional staffers are, are listening here. So if you are, uh, Mr. Wallach has a message for you. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I, I I do feel like a, a main target audience for this book is the members of Congress themselves because I do believe that they are the ones most capable of, of generating this change. And I, I don't think it's just a pie in the sky possibility. I really think it's there for them to seize to seize the initiative should they choose to do so. And you know, this generational shift in our congressional leadership maybe creates some openings for them, um, you know, that's already happened and that will be happening in the years to come. And, you know, I, I, I think, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of hope for a grassroots movement that's going to sweep America and say, reorganize Congress. I, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiastic uh, proselytizer for, for some, of, some of the ideas to reform our electoral systems and, and at least an enthusiastic sort of a curious, Drutman curious person uh, in terms of that kind of bigger scale uh, restructuring of the house. I, I really would like to see them, some of those experiments tried, but I'm just worried that the, the groundswell of bottom-up pressure isn't going to come. The members themselves have to realize this is their institution. They can make it work how they want. As James is so fond of saying, the, the, the leadership works for the membership. That's how, that's structurally how it is. The members don't need to think of their leaders as their bosses. And so, you know, I think, let me, I'll, I'll quote from it since you've invited me to do so. So speaking to the members, the choice and the responsibility for deciding what kind of institution Congress will be really is yours. Small hordes of well-meaning outsiders hope to push congressional reform along, but giving them, us, Polite hearing doesn't change anything. 
some of the ambitious and talented staffers employed in your offices harbor visions of a livelier politics, but it isn't up to them either. And much as we like to think that a commitment to self-government means that the American people have the ultimate say over all this, we shouldn't kid ourselves. The public has a great many unfulfilled substantive demands, but there's not going to be a groundswell of grassroots energy around the health of our legislature. The American people can get used to a Congress that doesn't work to alarming extent they already have. So if Congress is going to become the sort of institution that a free American people needs to be, someone will have to reject the kind of reasonableness that causes you to go along with the system, to make the phone calls, take the floor votes, raise the dollars as just loyal team members. Someone will have to stick their neck out. Easy for me to say, I know, nevertheless, there it is. We put our hope in you. And I really do think it's going to take some members who just think of themselves as the kind of figures who are willing to disrupt the arrangements on the ground today. And that's not going to be popular. Uh, at first, that's going to make them branded as sort of enemies of good sense. Uh, but I think it's that's what it's going to take. And I, I, I think some members just need to think of themselves a little differently. They're, they're, it's not worth keeping a job that just consists of dialing for dollars and voting the way the leaders tell you to. It's, it's worth risking that job for something far, far greater that's really ought to be the driving engine of our, of our constitutional system. You're bringing me to tears, Phil. That's, well, uh, I, I, hope, I hope you don't cry too long. But uh, All the good kind of tears, you know, emotional swelling, the possibility of a, of a revived Congress. I do think, you know, part of what we've got going is just a failure of imagination about this institution. And so I think we need to present different models of Congress to the members themselves. Unfortunately, the 21st century Congress has has sort of been going in this direction and a lot of people's memories don't don't extend any farther back than that. So, you know, give people give people the the visions the of a of a Congress working differently. I, I love James's tendency to talk about Clay and Webster and Calhoun because you know those those guys used to be true icons of everyone's every, in every American's political imagination. That triumvirate loomed very large. And that was something about how how the country worked for a long time, and they were more important people than the presidents that came and went in their era. With, I guess probably the exception of Andrew Jackson, but. This idea that Congress can be sort of the center of our government, you know, it, it's, it's, it's latent in our constitutional system. It's there in the constitutional architecture. So it's, it's, not, it's not a dead letter as far as I'm concerned. Um, and yeah, members, it's on you to make it happen. All right, you heard it here first. Article one of the constitution, not a dead letter. James, that's gonna be the headline of this episode, right? Uh, we'll see how that does in the SEO. Yeah, we'll see if it gets a good good response rate. Well, thank you, Phil, for giving us an, an inspiring vision, an essential book, and a glimmer of hope that maybe we are approaching the end of an era of decline and on the verge of a new era of revival. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. 
Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.